Well, it's good to be here once again with, uh, in this place at least, uh, a few faces perhaps to see, at least in part, and I'd like to join with Crawford in welcoming those who are beaming in, so to speak, uh, via the internet. Uh, I'd like us to read a part of God's Word before we ask God to bless this time of preaching and prayer. First Samuel and chapter 2. If you would turn with me to First Samuel and chapter 2. And uh, I'm sure if you're observant enough, you will notice that there is a, a very direct similarity uh, to the reading that Crawford read for us from Luke chapter 1. So we'll read 1 Samuel chapter 2 down to verse 11. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that is Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Amen. This is the word of God, and we give thanks to God for his holy and infallible word. Before we turn to this passage, let's join together in a word of prayer. Our God, the God who is the only living and true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of Hannah, and the God of Mary, and many others, as we read your word, Lord, we find that there are so many examples for us in this inspired word of God. And so we ask that you would bless your word to us as we seek to learn something from it this evening. 
O Lord, send forth your light and your truth. May they be our guides to lead us to yourself. For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, you may recall that I started preaching something from the first uh, chapter of the first book of Samuel uh, a few weeks ago, and I had intended to uh, finish this off a wee while ago, but as it happened, a minister came on the scene, and I was denied the opportunity to finish this. But I say that uh, perhaps with a a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. It's a privilege to be with you this evening, and I trust that the Lord will indeed bless our time together. So, we return uh, to this uh, narrative, the context where uh, in the first chapter of Samuel we find an introduction, yes, to the coming of Samuel into the world. But our attention previously in chapter 1 was perhaps drawn to this person called Hannah and the plight that she was in. We saw the difficult situation in which Hannah had found herself and how she was persecuted by the other wife of her husband, Elkanah, the wife called Peninnah. We saw the difficult situation in which she found herself, and we discovered that uh, in God's providence, uh, she's cited for us as an example of how to deal with adverse situations of uh, persecution, if you like, suffering of whatever kind. Uh, There was particular suffering in the experience of Hannah. And uh, it's good for us to be brought Uh, this to be brought to our attention when for many of us, uh, many times uh, our lives, uh, difficulties and suffering in our own lives and all seems pretty lost to us perhaps. We have our downs, but we thank God that he promises at the ultimate to save us and to raise us up. Now, Hannah... uh, it must be said, was a faithful woman in every way, yet it was God's will to use her as an exemplary child of his through all this hardship that she had to endure. And I think in some respects it reminds us of uh, Paul's words when he was describing his own experience as as an apostle of the Lord, going through various places and suffering hardship and persecution. This was his personal experience when he said, uh, writing to the Corinthians, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And the words previous to that, it it, it speaks of uh, that we are weak because the excellency of the power is from God and not of us. And although Hannah is very much in the context of this narrative, the pointers are always to her God, to the Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. And that is what we find as we go right through chapter 1, which we've already looked at. And just by way of uh, recapping uh, what we saw in the last last time I looked at this passage, uh, we saw Hannah 
uh, her prayer, the prayer that she uh, was uh, praying to God initially, uh, she was deeply distressed, we read in verse 10, and she prayed uh, this vow, she prayed to the Lord, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant uh, and remember me and not forget your servant, and so on. Uh, her prayer was molded through this providence that God had brought into her life through suffering. Uh, and so often, even in the natural world, we see uh, that it's good comes out of, for example, fruit. When a fruit, whether it's wine or oranges or whatever it is, apples, when they're uh, producing juice, the only way that can be done is when the fruit is crushed. And so it is in the experience of the Lord's people. And of course, so it was in the experience uh, supremely of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hannah's prayer uh, is molded in, in suffering. And all our prayers, uh, in some respects, have that uh, molding. God uses his providence hard or sometimes good, but it, it's molded through what we endure and experience in our lives. And chapter 2 is an example of that on the positive side in Hannah's experience. But going back uh, to what we had seen already, Hannah's prayer had an audience of one. There was only one person, one subject to whom she wanted her prayer to be given and offered. And of course, that audience of one is in capital letters because that one was God. And, and having heard her prayer, God listened, and he hears the prayers of his people. Sometimes we find that our prayers seem to go no further than the roof. But we must remember that God hears the prayers of his people. He lends his ear to their cry, as the Word of God reminds us. And the wonderful thing in Hannah's experience here is that we find that her prayer, uh, her prayer, which was a promise by herself in the prayer, that she hands back the very thing that she had asked for from God, that is, the child Samuel. She gives him back to the Lord. And that's how chapter 1 ends. Uh, she, she mentions in conversation with Eli, for this child I prayed, verse 27, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. And we read at the end of chapter 1 that he worshipped the Lord there, referring, I believe, to Samuel. He was young. At this point, I just want to ask a question, and I would like to ask what kind of experience are you going through just now in your own life? Uh, how are you just now? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you may be on the crest of a wave. Something good has happened to you. Or are you wrestling with something in your life? Perhaps unbeknown to others, but believe you me, they're known by your Father in heaven. How are you as you wrestle with life's challenges and uh, the perplexities? Uh, where 
or to whom do you go to? And what about those of us who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with life's difficulties uh, in our focus? God says in his word, look to me and be saved, O all you ends of the earth, for I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and I do not change. And you know, that's what Hannah is beckoning us to do. The focus is not on her primarily, but in God's inspired word, here we have a human being just like us, touched with our weaknesses and experiencing all the difficulties, in part at least, that we experience ourselves. And Hannah beckons us to look to God as did Mary in her Magnificat, as recorded in Luke chapter 1. Now, this, uh, this episode in Hannah's life is uh, a huge, huge change to the, the situation she was in. Going to chapter 2, we read at the beginning, Hannah prayed. This is a prayer uh, some commentators reckon that it is just like a psalm of David. It's like one of the psalms, a prayer in the form of poetry. And it's very important to notice that because in your, in your text, you'll notice that uh, the margins on either side of the text are much greater than what comes before that. And she begins, and it's interesting that Hannah prayed and said now, she may have said previously, but we read that uh, when she was praying, at one point at least, not only her lips were moving. Her prayer was, had previously come from her heart, and there's no doubt that this prayer comes from her heart as well, because she says so. But she is vocally expressing what she is feeling at this time. Her expressions before then were, tears and groans. Now remember where she had just been at the end of chapter 1. She was with her husband at the temple and she had just handed over her recently weaned child to serve the Lord as she had promised. This was her firstborn child and as she had promised to God, she handed him over. She gave him back, as it were, to the God who gave Samuel to her. In verse 11 of chapter 1, we, we read this. Uh, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, remember me and not forget your servant, but you will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. He was to be a Nazarite as well, but I'm not going into that. But surely there is here something of gospel truth just coming through. When we remember here we have Hannah and her husband, whom God had so blessed with this child. And here he is, the only child there was no saying how many children at this point that she might be blessed with or not at all. But here we have all that she's got in terms of a family. She hands him over to the Lord. 
Is that not something like what God himself has done for us in the person of Christ? In verses 27 and 28, uh, for this child I prayed. Uh, we've, we've read this before. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So, sacrifice features large in Hannah and Elkanah's life in this context. And this prayer is uh, loudly spoken. The sacrifice of her son to the Lord, the promise of the giving of her son to the Lord, has not hurt her, as far as we can read from the context of what's written in chapter 2, although there must have been a bit of a wrench there as she handed him over, yet the joy of the Lord was in her experience because she knew that she had done uh, what was right by God, having vowed this vow. So sacrifice features very large in the life of Hannah and in Elkanah's life as well. And this is what we find. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. The Lord, here is her focus. Yes, she speaks of her own experience in all of this, but the pointer is elsewhere. Not to me, but to him. And my heart exalts in the Lord. People who are reading this, it's almost as if she's saying, people, if you're reading this, the Lord took this as inspired scripture for us to read centuries and centuries ago since this was written, and yet it is so relevant for us today. And this is where she found her strength. My heart exalts in the Lord, in the Lord and his faithfulness, in all that the Lord has done. And she talks about my strength, or as it's translated elsewhere, horn. My horn is exalted in the Lord. That's where she gets her strength from. That's where she gets her joy from, as we read in the, at the end of verse 1. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. My mouth derides my enemies is an indication of the fact that she is with God and God's enemy. She's identifying herself with God and anyone who is against God is against her as well. The Lord is her focus. Her innermost being is lifted up to him in adoration, and she is strengthened in her consideration or by her consideration of the covenant God, Yahweh. She implies, yes, that those who might be against her are first and foremost against God because this is her God. And she can talk from experience of an aspect of his salvation. She says, I rejoice in your salvation. Now, we have to admit, dear friends, that it's not always easy for us to rejoice in the salvation of God. We have to uh, look back just in the previous chapter of how difficult it would have been for Hannah herself to have said anything like that. 
But this is what she finds. She has personal experience of God's dealings in, in his grace. And he, she worships him for what he has done for her. But she also praises him further, as we go further into this psalm for what God is like. And the focus seems to rest on that. It's all about God. This is not about me. It is about him who loved me and who did so much for me. That is what the Apostle Paul said, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what we find, first of all, what God is like. First of all, there are a few things. I'm going to just highlight one or two that I think come through in this passage. The holiness of God, that's patently obvious because in verse 3, that is what we read. There is none holy like Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Hannah is using negatives here. None, none, none. There is no one that can be compared with the Lord. There is none besides you. And of course, that is what the whole of the Bible is all about, telling us that there is but one only, the living and true God, who is presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Hannah recognizes that the God of Israel is a God apart, a God who is separate, a God who is other than what other gods are, and he is other than all of his creation. Hence, the I am's that we hear being uttered by the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. God is. And as one theologian said, God is. We are becoming because we're always changing, changing. All around us is changing. Only God remains as is. God is. He does not change. And it's brought to light here that God is uh, exclusive. He is the only living and true God. I am the Lord, says Isaiah in prophecy. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. And the God of Hannah has to be our God as well. Because being the only living and true God, he is the one in whose salvation alone we can rejoice. There is none other. You may remember how the Apostle Paul, speaking to the Athenians uh, on Marsh Hill, he addressed them with regard to what they called the unknown God. But he referred them, using, this, using that opportunity to tell them about the only God there is, the only living and true God. I like the words that uh, Hannah uses at the end of verse 2. There is no rock like our God. Sometimes... Uh, the, the, the writers in the script, of the scriptures under God's leading use uh, very appropriate metaphors in order to describe what our God is like. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is referred to as the rock, even in the New Testament. And here we find something of the character of God in the eyes of Hannah. There is no rock like our God. There is no rock as he has dealt with me and my experience of him in this past while, at least, has been that he is dependable. No other God can be depended on like the covenant God of Israel. And I like what she says at the end of verse 2. There is no rock like our God, our God, not just my God, but our God. There is this covenant community that is being referred to in her declaration of the exclusiveness of the God in whom she believes. There is no rock like our God. No other God can be dependent on. And there is no other name given from heaven amongst people, amongst men, whereby we must be saved. And as we heard this morning, that name is Jesus. There is no rock like our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. So there we have something much more I could say about the holiness of God, but let's leave it within its context here. I want to go on to another aspect of what God is like. And I think there is something of the character of God in terms of humility brought out for us here. Because in verse 3, look at what Hannah writes. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not, your, let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Pride is very much uh, criticized here. And uh, I think it's very true to say this, that if there is anything that is abhorrent to the God of Hannah, to the Yahweh that is presented to us in Scripture, if there is anything that is abhorrent, it's, it's pride and arrogance. There is absolutely no place for it. Talk no more in pride, she says. Don't be arrogant in your language. Let all arrogance come out of your mouth. For the Lord knows. The Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him actions are weighed. And here we have a hint of God's justice coming through the picture of scales, if you like, measuring and judging the hearts of each and every one of us. He tests the hearts and the motives of everyone. So not only does God detest arrogance and pride, but he also shows compassion. We find that coming through here. This humble compassion of God, of course, supremely presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his dealing with those who were in need uh, at a physical level, but not only that, but at a spiritual level as well. So God, he detests arrogance, but on the other hand, he shows compassion to those who are helpless in themselves. And I wonder, reading in verse, uh, verse, verse 5 here, uh, <clears throat> if, we, if we go down, we find uh, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. 
I wonder if there's uh, a hidden reference uh, in, 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 Hannah, in Hannah's words, sorry, in verse 3, let not arrogance come from your mouth. Remember how Penina had dealt with Hannah in an arrogant and rather unkind way. Hannah is perfectly provided for and fully satisfied. And uh, we find that here there is no place for uh, being smug and being self-sufficient as Penina had uh, demonstrated. And the wonderful thing is, uh, down to to verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. And she says, the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. It's an interesting uh, comment there. It it, it looks like it's uh, pertaining to her own experience, uh, perhaps at the hands of Penina. And she says, the barren have borne seven. She may be speaking of her own experience to the Lord there. No, she, she had been just given a son. But this word seven is always an indication of a, a perfection in uh, the receiving that she had. God had fulfilled the promise that, uh, uh, that uh, the, the desire of her heart rather and the vow that she had made to God sacrificial though that was. And it's very interesting that if you look further down in, in this chapter at verse uh, 20, verses 20, 21, Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah. She conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man, Samuel, grew in the presence of the Lord. So effectively, there was a a family of six children. But every time, if we can put it in this context, they sat around the table for a meal. There was always an empty chair, which indicated the sacrifice that she, she and her husband, Hannah, had made for the Lord. But the Lord is always with us in our empty chairs, the unseen guest. We see plaques on people's walls sometimes that there is the unseen guest. And many of you will have empty chairs in your own homes, and you will be missing the occupant of that chair. But the God of Hannah is able to bring joy out of anything that she may have given away because she doesn't seem to be sore-hearted in any way whatsoever. The sovereign God shows compassion to those who are in genuine need. But we're going to move to the sovereignty of God, having looked at uh, the holiness of God and, uh, pardon me, I get my notes in order the humility that was demonstrated, that is being hinted at from God himself. Just a few words about the sovereignty of God that comes out here. It's very obvious, I think. We have various descriptions from verses 6 to 8 of this attribute of the covenant God of Hannah. 
we always have to remember that it is the total, uh, totally the prerogative of God what happens in the history of humanity in the world. We are responsible for our own actions. God is not the author of any injustice in human social behavior. That is why we need his intervention. And there is so much difficulty and so much troubles going on in the world. In verse 5, sorry, in verse 6, we read these words, the Lord kills and brings to life. Now, let me just make this clear. The Lord does not murder. The Lord is not guilty of that kind of death. But the Lord allows murder to happen, and it is just a demonstration of the sinfulness of fallen humanity. But we thank God that He is sovereign over all of that, and that He knows what He is doing. Many people ask, why did God allow that person to die? But we have only to look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, where we find that as we read down through Scripture, that this was the purpose of God in order to make our salvation, in order to make our salvation not only possible, but sure, because there was no other way. Yes, in the book of Acts, we read right at the beginning that it was people who were responsible for bringing to death the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet, as Isaiah reminds us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And God allowed the wickedness of men to fulfill his own purpose. But here we find the Lord kills and brings to life. Oh, we thank God that that is the case. Because we ourselves, even in our natural way, we can't bring ourselves to life. We can't. Uh, make ourselves be born of our mothers, can we? No. And neither at the spiritual level can we bring ourselves to life either. The Lord kills, the Lord brings to life. He brought life forth in a natural way, yes, but in answer to prayer in the womb of Hannah, but in a supernatural way in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It is God's prerogative to do all of these things. He brings down to Sheol, or the realm of the dead, and raises up. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. Now, here we have something of God's sovereignty being combined with his compassion and his salvation. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes. God has no favorites. God doesn't look at people and say, well, they merit this or they're good enough for that. I'm going to put them at that level and so on and so forth. He raises up the poor. And it's we who are identified with the poor mentioned here because By our sin, we are in the dust. We are sinful creatures, and God has to raise us up, and God will raise us up as uh, he sovereignly purposes to do so. 
It is totally then the prerogative of God. The sovereign God nevertheless shows compassion to those who are genuinely in need. And I believe, and it's perfectly evident from the word of God, and especially in the gospel narratives, that there is a longing in God to show mercy and to lift up. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And these are mentioned uh, in this passage uh, by, uh, by uh, Hannah in her writing of this. The sovereign God shows compassion. And I think this compassion was supremely uh, exhibited for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his ministry right up to the cross where he gave himself as a ransom for our sins. So God was sovereign in all of that. And here is Hannah acknowledging the sovereignty of God. Now I want to go to the last couple of verses. And this is what I want to linger just for a while. I think brought out in these verses is something at least of the justice of God. The judgment of God. Uh, You remember how we Uh, mentioned uh, earlier on how God weighs us, as it were, in the balance. And I think in these verses, there's a clear indication uh, of, first of all, God's promise of protection for his own. This is what we read read in verse 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. And then, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. I think there's an echo there of words we we have at the end of Psalm 1, where where the psalmist is speaking of the two ways uh, of life, wickedness and godliness, righteousness and evil. And I think there's also a clear indication here of God's judgment for those who are willingly uh, opposing him in whatever way that is demonstrated in their lives. The wicked shall be cut off. There's a faithful promise as well as a solemn warning brought to us in two lines at the beginning of verse 9. And here is uh, Hannah under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit again reiterating that the strength of man is not what will prevail. We're living in a world where power and might, whether it's political or whether it's financial uh, or, or whatever it is, it's, it seems to be the thing that matters, and yet it's not. Against, uh, for not by might shall a man prevail. And it's in our own strength that fallen huma- in their own strength that fallen humanity is trying to solve all the problems that sin has brought into our world. And there are those who are what are called here in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. And I think here we have the justice of God being brought out in fair judgment of those who are opposers of the principles of the Word of God, the principles that God has laid down for us himself, the God 
of saving grace. The God who wants that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The God who wants to be listened to and heard. This opposition to Yahweh is described here as wickedness. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And you know, that is what happened on the cross of Calvary because he who knew no sin became sin for us, in effective, effectively the enemy of God bearing our sins. And God was in judgment on the sins of his own, on Jesus Christ. And he was judged, figuratively speaking, broken in pieces. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Against them he will thunder in heaven. And we know how the natural world was on a wobble, as it were, at the time of the crucifixion, as God was thundering his judgment on sin on the cross of Calvary. And of course, the warning of judgment comes in this, uh, continues in this verse. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. But we, we, we end on a, a bright light note, I think, in this uh, narrative, in this prayer. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, and he will do that justly. And he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. It's pointed here, I think, in some ways to the last judgment. But surely there is also a pointer, as I suggested earlier, to him who knew no sin, who was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I think there is almost certainly a vision of King Jesus brought out here as Hannah concludes her, her psalm of praise, her hymn of exalt, exultant uh, rejoicing in the Lord. It's a prophetic statement, it would appear, regarding who is to be the king. Israel had no king at this time. And regarding the power of his anointed, this apparently is the first mention of, uh, in the Bible, where Jesus is referred to as the Messiah in Hebrew, Messiah, Christos, Christ, in the Greek New Testament. And for us, in our English language, his anointed. Well, there are lots of other things that could be brought out of this passage. What we have to remember is that at this time, no, Israel didn't have a king. And they didn't seem to want one. But when Hannah spoke of his king, he will give strength to his king. She is referring to the Yahweh of the covenant, who was to provide a king, whom the hymn writer calls the king of love. The king of love, my shepherd is, his goodness faileth 
never. And this is the king to whom she is referring here. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed, echoing the words that Paul, writing to the Philippians, said that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. He will be raised above uh, to the highest and there will be universal confession of the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, time is gone. Just a couple of words in conclusion. Hannah in this uh, hymn has drawn her focus firmly to the God of her salvation. And she's effectively saying to us, this is what he is like. This is what he does. And he does everything equitably and well. Surely this ought to be a comfort for, for us all, especially as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, in our ups and downs. Ultimately, the, this uh, little slot of Hannah's life, it's a, a microcosm of the progress of the Christian that we go on and on and on to a brighter and brighter and brighter future. And it's a, it ought to be a comfort for us that no matter the, the blips and the trips and all the hesitations that take place in our lives, we're assured through the writings of Paul that where God begins the good work, he won't let us go, regardless of how often we stray although he'll, he'll discipline us for these things. But his purpose for those whom he saves is that where he has begun sounds like mastermind. I've started, so I'll finish. And that is what God promises to do. It ought to be a comfort for us that what God has begun, he will bring to an end in perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is also a sure savior for you. If you are an unbeliever, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, if you're a stranger to his grace, he is a sure savior for you as you struggle to find purpose in your life in the midst of perplexity, pain, pointlessness, meaninglessness. And I think for us all, this hymn of Hannah's with the Magnificat of Luke's Gospel by Mary, the ought to, to help us to focus. And this is where we find our strength from in times of difficulty. We must look up and not look down. I am prone to looking down quite a lot myself. I know that from my own experience when things are going hard. But we must look to him. I'd like us to conclude with a word of prayer. And I'm going to read for you in prayer the words of Psalm 16. Let's pray these words. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. 
Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. There we have a reference to the Lord Jesus. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Amen.